And there was a, a young man, a younger man, standing there with him. They looked vaguely familiar, but he couldn't quite place him. Maybe you've had that experience. You're just wondering, who, who is this? And, you know, oftentimes we do, as Westerners do, we don't, we don't talk, we don't engage. We just sort of, you know, exist in that space there for a few minutes together. Okay, so Rico Tice is standing there by this young man, younger man, that he vaguely recognizes but can't for the life of him place who it is. And this goes on for about five minutes. And then another man comes around the corner and says to the man standing by Rico Tice, Ah, oh, William, William, there you are. We're in the private dining room. Come on with us. And Rico thinks for a minute, he thinks, William? Prince William. He's been standing there with the future king of his nation for the last five minutes, has said nothing, done nothing, engaged with him not at all, and realizes, oh, what a lost opportunity this is to have greeted my my future king. I had this opportunity to engage with him, to greet him, to, to speak with him, and I, I just let it go by not knowing who he was. Now, that made for a bitter disappointment in the life of Rico Tice. How much more so if we fail to recognize, if any of us fail to recognize, the one true king of the kings and the Lord of the Lords, Jesus Himself. If we fail to recognize who He is and respond to Him appropriately, how much worse it would be. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Now, I realize uh, unless you've got your table of contents rolling, you may not know where that is. And that's okay. Let me help you. It's right there towards the end, not quite at the very end, but towards the very end of the Old Testament. So, you got your Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's New Testament. That's the start of the New Testament. The Gospels. Now go to the left. You hit this book called Malachi, and you hit Zechariah. And that's where we are. We're in Zechariah chapter 9. Okay, Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 17. We're drilling down, though, in verses 9 through 11. Okay, so I'm going to read the whole of the chapter, verses 1 through 17. Chapter 9, Zechariah, but we're going to be drilling down into verses uh, 9 to 11, but we need to kind of have a fuller picture of, of the whole of, what, of what's going on here. So, Zechariah 9, hear now the Word of God. The burden of the Word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath, also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites." 
Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness, and how great His beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that we would see you as we have sung of you, that we would see you as we have sung of you, that we would worship you, that we would follow you, that we would bow, submit gladly to you as we have heard of you, read even already this morning from the Psalms and from Matthew's gospel and now here from Zechariah. Oh, that our minds and our hearts and our lives would be matched, would be consistent with the things that we have sung and heard. We plead with you, we ask that you would impress these realities upon us and make us indeed, as we are, your people, your followers, your disciples. May it be. May it be. We pray in your name. Amen. It was March the 29th, A.D. 33. The pilgrims there on the day of the Passover festival, for the week of the Passover festival, uh, and the citizens, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were filled with expectation. Jesus and His disciples were there on the Mount of Olives. There the Kidron Valley lay between them and the city of Jerusalem. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, ascending up into the city, riding on a donkey with great intentionality, with great purposefulness. This is the only time we ever read of Jesus riding anything. At all other times, He is walking. He is doing this with purposefulness, with intentionality. He is making a declaration. I am indeed your king. I have indeed come to take back what is indeed who and rightly mine. 
He is making that very plain declaration. He's coming in just as uh, Solomon did centuries before. And the people respond with acclaiming. Jesus proclaims, in essence, I am the king, and they acclaim him, indeed, as, as the king. And the crowd's going wild, absolutely wild. The city is shaken. You, you, you cannot really, it's di- difficult for us uh, reading this, and I think some of it's because, I mean, it's fine with our, when our children, and, you know, it's great, you know, in, in our Sunday school classes when you're doing that kind of thing, and if you've got your flannel board with your, your little palm branches and that kind of thing, and that's great, and that's cute, and it impresses something on the hearts of our children, but it doesn't really gauge well the feel of a revolution that's about to take place, right? Um, there's something powerful trans. Uh, piring here. It was such a vol. It's, it's a powder keg, is, is what was laid there. And, and Jesus, you'll note, doesn't refuse the praise. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. That, that's not, no. He accepts it. He accepts it. And uh, much to the chagrin and horror of the Jewish authorities and the concern of, of the Roman soldiers. And uh, if you go and you read, like as we did earlier in Matthew's gospel and also John's gospel, you can see that these gospel writers recognize they, they're pointing back to Zechariah's prophecy some 500 years before, that what's happening here is exactly as was foretold that the king was going to come into his city and his people would, in fact, respond in this way with loud shouts and great rejoicing. What do we see here? We pull all this together. We pull all this together and begin to kind of let it mesh and, 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 and get the, the larger picture. What we're seeing here is that indeed the king has come. The king has come and he is worthy of our praise. The king has come and he is worthy of our praise. Now how? How? How is he worthy of our praise? Such great praise. Why would we do well to join in with the praises of the crowds on that Palm Sunday, even though they said better than they knew? Why would we do so well? Why would it be so wise of us, right of us, to join in with those shouts and with those praises? Why would we say that he is so great? Two reasons. If you've got the outline, you can see where we're going here. Point one, the greatness of the king. Point two, the greatness of the kingdom. Very simple. Very simple. The greatness of the king and the greatness of his kingdom. And you see this here in this text in Zechariah. Let's look at it together. Verse 9, the greatness of the king. Who is he? Who is he? What is he like? Well, let's look at it. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Three things to consider here. First, the mystery of his person. Who is he? He is unlike any other this world has ever seen. On the one hand, he is clearly a divine warrior. You go back and read verses 1 through 8, that's why we did that. You can see verses 1 through 8 and also verses 12 through 17, but in in verses 1 through 8, it's very clear there's this list of nations that had plagued Israel from coming down, invading these invaders, coming down from the north. If you look at a map, it's what you can see, who's listed there. 
And in this case, however, the invader is not those nations. The invader, in essence, is the Lord Himself taking out those nations as He travels from the north to the south to His people. They will trouble His house no more, His people no more. Clearly, this is a divine warrior, but at the same token, He's also a human ruler. Who is this? How can this be? You see these distinctions made, verses 1 through 8, I... I am coming, and yet at the same time, verses 9 through 10, He is coming. I is coming. He is coming. Then you pick up again in verses 10 through 13. I am coming. I am going to do this. And then again, verses 13 through 17, the Lord is coming, and He is... Who is this? And by the way, He can be observed riding a donkey. Who is this? This divine warrior, this human ruler the mystery of His person, also the beauty of His character, what He is like. He is described here as being righteous, unlike so many rulers that God's people had been afflicted by and even had within you know, their, their own rulers. And we could identify with something of, of that in our own history and just looking around the world today. Unlike so many other rulers, this one is truly righteous, meaning he lives in accord with God's commands, with His laws, with His statutes, not just externally on the surface but deeply embedded within His own heart. He is truly the righteous one. Not just that, He comes with salvation. He, he comes bringing salvation. He is the instrument. He is the vehicle. He is the means by and through which salvation is going to come. But this is where the donkey comes into play. You may be wondering, how could that be? Well, in the customs of the ancient Near East, when a king comes into a city riding a donkey, that is a completely different image. That was not unheard of, by the way. But that's a completely different image than a conquering king coming into the city on a war horse. That's a completely different feel for the inhabitants, right? Like troubles are coming. But when your king comes in riding into your city, riding the donkey, that meant and he's the returning king. Coming to restore, coming to reclaim. Again, that which and who which is rightfully His. And that, that image is a welcome one when we understand it. He comes as the righteous one. He comes as the saving one. We see this, the mystery of His person, the beauty of His character. And one last thing, the pattern of His approach, the way He comes and how this is described. He comes with a particular, on a particular mission with some specificity in mind. Note how he's described here, there in verse 9. Your king, not just a king, the king, your king is coming. And he is coming for, or it could be translated, to you. You get the, you get this, the specificity here, the, the personal side to this and his, his coming. And speaking of the personal side, his personal concern is evident here. Twice, twice the appeal is made to a daughter, the daughter of Zion, the, the daughter of Jerusalem. Oh, behold your king. Now, that's a reference to the people of God. But think of why that expression is being made or, or being used here. Because it's meant to imply this personal concern, this warmth, this tenderness of the heart of God, this divine warrior, this human ruler, 
with this beautiful character who comes, that he, how he feels towards his people. Oh, daughter, this is who is coming for you. This is who is, is coming for you. His person, his character, his approach point us, tell us something of the greatness of this king. How great is he? Well, let me tell you a story. It's a true story from history. How great. Julian the Apostate. Now, I don't think that was his birth name. But Julian the Apostate was the, uh, I believe, the nephew of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, his predecessor. Uh, he renounced the Christian faith and decided that what he was going to do was swing things. It's kind of like in our day, you know, blue swings to red, rain swings to blue, right? Well, so you have Constantine swinging to Julian. Julian decides he wants to abolish Christianity and to reinstate the old pagan ways throughout the empire. And he knew enough about the Christianity. He knew of the prophecies from the Old Testament that ancient Babylon would never be rebuilt. And he said, oh, I'm, I'll show you. And so he sends his armies out into Mesopotamia to rebuild that city. And you know what happened? History records on June 26th in the year 363 A.D. in the course of a battle against the Persians, Julian, the apostate, was struck down with a sword. And his dying words were this, Thou hast conquered... O pale Galilean, how great is this king? He is the greatest of the kings, and there is and never will be any greater. The greatness of our king should free and drive and impel the hearts of his people to have the deepest of courage. And we understand the greatness of our king, which then can work right up against, so beautifully, our fearful outlook and stances on things in our lives. And we understand the greatness of our king. It should speak right into the, the, the free us to have the deepest of courage and, and, and free us also from the tyranny, the, the shackles of our fearful outlook and responses in life. Now, why is that goodness? Think of how much of our lives are spent up and wasted in fear. Let me give you three ways it shows itself. Three fruits of fear, okay? One is control. We try to seize control. We're going through life, I'm speaking metaphorically, not necessarily literally now, going through down the road of life, and the, the car is drifting into the ditch or into oncoming traffic, and so what do we do? We seize the wheel. We have to have control because we think, feel like things are out of control. Out of our fear, we try to manipulate and make things run the way we think they need to be run because apparently no one's running the show. Fear makes us a controlling people. That's the first one. Second, fear makes us an angry people. Fear can make you an angry person. You feel like things are out of control. You feel like you're backed into a corner like a trapped animal. You lash back. Think of how many of our posts and tirades and outbursts over the last few months have been driven by what? Yeah, they looked angry. You know what was down beneath it? Fear. Fear. 
Fear can make you try and seize control. Fear can try and make you, will make you angry. Fear will also, it seems like it's the opposite, but it's the same root, withdraw. Withdraw. I'm unsure. I, I don't, I feel unsafe. And so I'm going to pull back, not just from situations, it could be that, but also relationships. I mean, let's be honest. Some of you, some of us, self-included at times, are just fine with social distancing because you don't feel safe. And I don't even mean because of COVID. I mean relationally. You don't feel safe. So you pull back. You're afraid. What if... We heard the words of Zechariah 9. What if we were to really grapple with and to embrace and take to our hearts the words that indeed the great king has come? What would that do to our two, or can I just say four, four, our fearful hearts? The king has come. The King has come, and He is worthy of our praise. Well, that's the greatness of the King. Let's move now into the greatness of His kingdom. We stopped in verse 9. Let's look at verses 10 through 11 now. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Uh, this, just as he is beyond any king that the world has ever seen, this kingdom is, is the same. Zechariah speaks here of a universal peace, an end to all war. Hard for us to get our minds around this. But an end to all war, an abolishing of all instruments of war done away with. All instruments of war he speaks of here in the ancient times, that which was used either by Israel or against Israel are going to be done away with, gone. As the other prophets speak of where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears beaten into pruning hooks. That's what, that's what this is about here. A day is coming in which there is no more an end to war and a new message, a new message, peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word meaning fullness and fruition and fulfillment and, put it this way, the way things ought to be, peace to all nations, to all peoples, all peoples. This is something beyond anything the UN has ever thought of, this universal peace. Universal peace guaranteed by, here's the other, there's the subpoint. a universal peace guaranteed by His sovereign rule that is, goes out with an, can I just put it this way, an absolute extension over all the earth, everywhere, nothing left out. No one left out. Nothing left out. Absolute extension without exception. There is no inlet, no island, no cave, no cove that gets a pass here, that somehow is outside of His rule, His reign, His power, His gaze, His sight. Such is His sovereign rule. Nothing escapes His reign. A universal peace a sovereign rule guaranteed by, and this is in the text as well, a sure, solemn promise. Did you catch that in, in verse uh, 11? 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, whose blood? His. This is hearkening back. There's a lot of different ways to go with this, but at the very least, this is hearkening back to a unilateral promise that God made with Abraham where He said, I will take the covenantal curse upon me. And eventually, in time, that was fulfilled with the shed blood of the king on a bloody cross. And that's how we can know. That's how sure this promise is. That's how we can know these things are going to come to pass, that this kingdom is indeed that great. Friends, the king has come. He has indeed come. And one day, one day, he's going to usher in that kingdom in a full and final way. And that is a cause for great joy. And that is a cause for loud shouts, loud shouts indeed. But I wonder, I wonder if we really grasp this. I wonder if I really grasp this. There's a great line in Disney's original Aladdin. I, haven't, I don't think I've seen the remake. I'm talking about the, from 1992 or so, the, the animated movie. It's a great scene towards the end, just as everything's, everything seems to have gone sideways. Aladdin, you may remember, tricks Jafar into wishing to become as powerful or actually more powerful than the genie. Remember this? Remember how it goes? So, so Jafar gets his wish, and then Aladdin proceeds to mock him and says this, you wanted to be a genie, you got it, and everything that goes with it, phenomenal cosmic powers, itty-bitty little living space. It's a great moment. It's hysterically funny. But I wonder, is that our view of the kingdom? Itty-bitty living space. As Jafar, you may remember, is shackled and sucked down into a little black genie lamp. Is that our view of the kingdom? Is that how constrained, in our, really in our lives, in our Monday through Saturday, is that how we view the reign of our king? The greatness of his uh, reign, the greatness of this king, as I said a little while ago, should impel us to have the deepest of courage and should trans- just completely transform our fearful outlook and responses. Now, the greatness of, our, of, of the kingdom should speak to and impel our wider concern for the affairs of this world and push us beyond our little itty-bitty gospel. Our little itty-bitty gospel. You know, it's interesting to note that scholars have observed, historians have observed, that despite Zechariah's great promises here, those who awaited the Messiah those years, they had no categories for it, and it basically went ignored. They just didn't think about it. It wasn't on their radar, what Zechariah was saying, saying, saying here, as they awaited even for the Messiah. And I wonder if we have categories for this. The greatness of the kingdom. The greatness, can I just say the greatness of the gospel? What is the gospel? Maybe we need to talk about that for just a minute here. What is the gospel? Yes, it is about the possibility of our having a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's right. It includes that. 
But friends, that can tend towards a being a very individualistic, personalized message. And the Bible says a lot more than that in terms of what the gospel actually is. Jesus, we read of in His earthly ministry, preached the gospel of the kingdom. That was His message, the gospel of the kingdom. And what that message had to do with, not just a, the, the good news that we could have a personal relationship with God, but the good news of a cosmic redemption and restoration as in everything everything being made right. Him coming to, yes, rescue us from our sins, but to restore and reclaim everything. So the fullness of the gospel message is, yes, we can have a relationship with our God and share that beautiful life together with Him and one day on a remade earth forever. We actually sung about this just a little while ago. In Hail to the Lord's Anointed, the two sides, the fullness of the gospel message. I don't know if you caught this, what you sang. I heard you say it. I did. I saw it on the screen. You know what you sang? Hail to the Lord's anointed, Dave, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. Do you see how a, a, what a big king this is? What a great savior. All, Carissa, all. What a great king this is. This, this is why he's come to make all things right, not just make us right. He's come to make all things right. This is the desire. This is the burden of his heart. This is what he's, the, the work that he has begun. And, and when you think about it, it ought to be our own desires as his followers. It ought to be what our work ought to be about if, in fact, we are his followers. This is why, friends, historically, the church consistently and I mean by that consistently with what we see here in the Bible. The church has been not just about missions, but mercy. Not just about the pursuit of holiness, but the founding of hospitals. Not just about the spiritual matters of life, but societal issues. Not just about the proclamation of justification alone by faith. but the call for justice for the poor and downtrodden. Those aren't two messages, friends. It's one message. It's one gospel. The Bible is very clear on this. I'm just going to be honest. You'd have to take an exacto knife to your Bible and cut pages and pages and pages and pages out. Not to see this. The king has come. And he's worthy of our praise. I promise an Aslan moment. Here you go. So, the third book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's the story of Edmund and Lucy. They have returned to Narnia. Oh, with their 
useless cousin Eustace Scrub who deserved that name, according to the narrator. So they returned to Narnia, and they set out on a voyage, or, or sent out on a voyage, I guess you could say, with their old friend Caspian, who's now King Caspian. And uh, it, it's a voyage out upon the seas to seek out and discover what is it that's become of the seven lords who were banished by Caspian's uncle, Uncle Miraz, years before when he's tried to steal what well, he did, steal the throne. And it's a the fa- great tale, great, much better than the movie, um, the, the book, um, a great story of this, this journey from island to island to island on, as, as they're seeking out, eventually, Aslan's country on the east or far east edge of the sea. Well, one of the islands that they come to is Coriakin's Island. Coriakin, he's a wizard. He was given the charge by Aslan to guide the people, uh, well, creatures, people, of, of this island in wisdom. The Duffers is what they were called. The Duffers were so dim-witted and stubborn, however, that Coriakin, as a wizard, found himself forced to cast a spell upon them, joining their two legs into one. Now, the Duffers didn't take kindly to this, so they stole some of Coriakin's magic to make themselves invisible. It's a complicated story. Well, here's what's going on when you think about it. They don't know who their king is. They don't know who their guide is. They don't know who their ruler is. They don't understand. They think he's a tyrant. They don't get what his purposes are, what his intentions are, what their need of him and his intentions and purposes over them. And so the reader... The, the reader, you just can't help but, but see this as the third party watching all this unfold. You can see, oh my goodness, they don't know who their king is. And you can see how life is just falling apart on this island. Everything is just askew and messed up. And it's almost funny. Until you start asking this question. How are we like the duffers? dim-witted and too stubborn to recognize who our king is and what he is like and our need for his reign and rule over our lives. Friends, how are we, you and I, like the duffers? The king has come. Hail to the Lord's anointed. The king has come. And oh, he is worthy of our worship. Can we pray? Oh, Lord Jesus, how we should join those crowds that Palm Sunday. Oh, if we could go back in time and stand there with them, we should lead them, not just join them, lead them in their shouts of of praise. How they spoke so much better than they knew. And we know, at least to a degree, how great you are as our king. And at least theoretically, we understand that we have no cause for fear. And every reason for the deepest of courage. We know something of the greatness of your kingdom. And yet, yet... Our gospel has been shrunk-sized, so little atrophied, our concerns so narrowed. Oh, you are so 
worthy of our great praise, our fullest trust, our life's obedience, a loyalty steadfast, a love unabating for you and for one another. We thank you that you have come. Would you rule and reign even in our hearts? Establish, oh Jesus, establish your kingdom in our midst. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have mercy. We're so glad you've come. Would you come soon? We pray in your name. Amen.